All right, welcome everyone to another episode of We All Speak in Poems. Today we're sitting down with Michael Lassard, a vocalist and songwriter most known for his work in the progressive metal bands The Contortionist and Last Chance to Reason. He also releases his own solo work under his own name, which has recently put out a track called Dead and Gone. In this episode, we're chatting about writing his solo music, how he developed his voice when he was younger, becoming the frontman of The Contortionist, new contortionist music, new Last Chance to Reason music, and much more. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah, so um, your new track, Dead and Gone, will be out by the time this comes out. Um, what was the inspiration behind that track? Um, so a lot of the stuff I release is a little bit of doom and gloom for the most part, I guess you could say. There's some uplifting stuff, but... Um, Essentially, I wrote it as just a fun song to do something a little different. It's got a little bit of like an indie folkish upbeat type thing going on. And I was just doing it for my own pleasure. I never thought I would release it. But then once I got it done, it had a little bit of a pop sensibility and some stuff I really liked. And I was like, well, why not release it? Break up the monotony of kind of the the slower, darker acoustic stuff I had been releasing. For sure. Yeah, nice. I mean, on that term, the fact that you released your solo work so sporadically, is that like by intention or? (laughs) No, no, it's uh, just um, between juggling the band's new record, touring, and just everyday life, I just kind of get to it when I get to it. And sometimes I just... I have a really bad habit of getting a verse and chorus or a chorus and a verse separate from each other and then being like, I want to start a new shiny toy toy. And, uh, you know, then I'm like, I'm going to start something different, something that's new and intriguing. And then like six months later, I'll go back to it and I'll be like, Oh, I almost have like a whole song here. I just need to write like another part and add some layers. And then, then I get to it. So it's not by design. It's just by unfortunately, I am as a human. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, yeah, I've heard a bunch of the sort of B-sides, I guess you can call them, all the tracks that you have been working on. And they're really good. Every time I hear them, I'm like, how are you not just finishing this, man, and put it out? But Yeah, a part of, you know, part of it's like it does, as you know, it's almost like the last 10 to 15% is the hardest in a lot of ways because it's like you're refining it, you're trying to mix it and make it better and you hear it for so long you're like is this good is it bad i don't know what it is anymore and that's kind of part of why i go to the new shiny toy thing too is because i do look at it for so long i'm like i need to do something else yeah 100 percent. especially with but, you and you do like a hundred different vocal takes for it right and then comp it's like yeah, at least for yeah. with me it's just it's just instrumentals right so it's a little bit easier to kind of not dwell on the exact performance of it where you're very particular, right? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> when did, uh, have, have you always sort of been like that? Like very particular with your vocal takes and trying to get it pretty perfect? I don't think it was until I like did like a, the first Last Chance to Reason record. I did like a, like a proper album and went in the studio and worked with jamie king and he'd be like okay i'd be like i think that's good and he'd be like well let's get it again and like once i started doing those reps and realized how much better a take can get from doing a lot of reps 
Um, you know, because the first, I would say, 15, 20 takes is you just kind of fumbling your way through it, understanding what the part even is, if you haven't rehearsed it a bunch or if you're writing it on the spot. And then you start being like, okay, what if I move this breath to here? Or what if I, I pause a little longer here? And, you know, sometimes that causes option paralysis, though, because, you know, you can sing a part a million different ways. And sometimes I do get caught up in that. But yeah, it was after I did a proper record where I realized the benefits of doing something a bunch of times and being like, oh, I like that little crack in my voice here. I like, the, you know, the breath here and kind of mis mixing and matching. For sure. Wow, very sure. planned out, yeah. In terms of lyrics, how do you come up with lyrics for your solo stuff versus, like, the contortionist? Um, With contortionist, it's definitely... It's... I know what the band is. I know what the image of the band is. I know what our fans like. Um, So there is, like, a fingerprint there that I already have to go with and kind of go back to whenever I'm working on contortionist stuff. With my own stuff, I can really do whatever. You know, I can... I can be a little more sarcastic with the lyrical content. I can be a little more down to earth, not as metaphorical. I can use different types of metaphors I might not use with the contortionist. Um, and just stuff like that. Like I, I would even say, like with, I said sarcastic, but even like use the rest. I don't think I would ever use a line like my sarcasm is getting, uh, getting thick. I think I'm wearing thin in a contortionist track, but it, you know, in my solo stuff, I liked how it sounded. Yeah. Um, so it's really about just kind of taking a mental note of what I think, I guess, Michael Lassard as the contortionist front man is, as what I think Michael Lassard is as a solo artist. And I kind of have to compartmentalize those portions of myself and view myself differently when I'm working on those different. For sure. Do you have like a clear image that you want to present as Michael Lissard instead of, you know, a frontman for Last Chance or, or The Contortionist? Um, not definitive, but I think what I like about doing my solo stuff is I can be simpler. And I think... I rely more on being simple, but I don't know if clever is a word, but simple and more refined, but still impactful in its own way. Um, it doesn't need to be these shifting, you know, metric modulations and harmonic modulations yeah. and all these different things to keep you entertained. There's little nuances throughout, whether it's a delay throw, because my favorite part about my solo stuff is I can dive into the production aspect of it. With the band, there's so many layers just when you get every member on a part that there's not a lot of room for some of that stuff. With my solo stuff, it's about taking very simple things and going really deep with the production. So, And that's kind of what I like about for it. For sure. Yeah, I actually had a question about that specifically. Like, you're really into vocoders and layering vocals like a thousand times and messing around with, you know, digital delays and reverbs and reversing and all this stuff. And in your solo stuff, especially, it allows like a when you don't have the main vocal, it allows a very um, almost ambient, pretty instrumental, right? With the vocals acting as an instrument. Um, when did you sort of get into all that type of stuff? Was it just from experimenting a bunch with your solo stuff? 
Yeah, I think it originally stemmed from experimenting on Clairvoyant. I did uh, most of the vocal production. So it started there with me chopping and screwing vocals and doing all that stuff. And then when I went to my solo stuff, like I said, a lot of the chord progressions and just fundamental movements of the song are very simple. So I was like, well, production is what's going to make this feel bigger, more impactful, and more dense uh, musically. So then I was like, I'm just going to take that same concept and take samples and chop and screw them and break them and turn them and flip them and do all this different stuff until it just becomes my own thing. Um, and that was kind of where that stemmed from. And then I just kind of built upon that. For sure. Yeah, because even in Dead and Gone, it's like all over the place. If you take out your main vocal, you know, it's all scattered around, you know. Yeah, it's always there. Yeah. It's really cool. You know, when you're thinking about doing your solo stuff, did you ever think about coming up with an alias instead of your using your name? Or Yeah, so originally I used to release like little small snippets on SoundCloud as uh, I think my alias was Jive Juno. Right, yeah. Um, and then when I finally went to go release music, um, the band's first label, Good Fight, approached me about releasing it. And it was a deal that I, I liked. It was simple. It was kind of release by release. So we did that to start, but they didn't want me using it. Yes, they wanted me using my own name, probably because the name had already been built by the previous bands, and they thought it'd be a bigger launching point. And then just from then, I've just been michael lassard myself for sure yeah i guess it's not too late either you've only come out with uh three songs pretty much that's true i could always switch it up and go into hiding and then back out to somebody else <laughs> for sure um you're really into it seems like collaborating with people like we did ours you're always doing guest vocals on on other people's tracks and stuff do you have a like a dream collaboration as michael lassard maybe even outside of like the the prog scene. Yeah. I mean, it'd be Justin oh, Vernon. Sick, yeah. Bonnie there. That makes sense. No. Yeah. That'd be, cause honestly he's kind of who inspired me to really lean into taking audio and just destroying it in the prettiest possible way, yeah. you know, with the pops and all the things that you would technically steer away from in recording with pops and clicks and, all these different things he uses to add like this natural organic sound. And then in later releases, he started taking very digital assets and making them feel organic, even though they're very digitized. So that's, he's, he's kind of the guy who inspired me to go down that rabbit hole. Too. For sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And even for me too, like I still use the technique of like hitting the guitar strings with a fork or whatever he did. I, I actually found out yep. recently using an Ebo on that and just going a little bit too hard gets the exact sound of like, uh, what's the track that he uses that in one of the forever forever ago tracks and, uh, sounds super good. And yeah, which I finally got on vinyl. Oh, did you? No. Yeah, I did. So I've been jamming it with my coffee in the yeah, morning. Nice. Yeah. That's like the best record ever. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, is it uh i'm trying to think of the song only love yeah yeah exactly oh is that uh yeah i think it's the track oh my god it's because of the podcast too much pressure <laughs> yeah it's like kind of what it ends exactly. with yeah when it goes back into the verse Going. exactly yeah i know what part you're talking about <laughs> 
going back a bit, um, when did you start singing or how did you learn that you could sing? So if you ask my parents, they'd probably say there's like videotape of me being a kid just singing like the same three lines like over and over again from, I don't remember the name of the movie, Tom Hanks movie where he's like a manager of a band. Uh, that Thing You Do, have you ever seen I that movie? I so. Uh, so it's like a movie must have been the 90s. So, and I, there's a videotape of me just singing the same line over again, just being like, ooh, doing that thing you do. And I just kept singing and saying, I must have drove my mom crazy because I would just sing that line over and over and over again. And, uh, yeah, I just always loved singing. I fell in love with music. My dad had a lot of cassettes, and I'd just fall asleep at, like, the age of four or five. I'd fall asleep with headphones on, listening to Brian Adams' uh, tapes. And, um yeah, I I was always in love with music, and then in middle school, my grandfather got me guitar lessons, and I wasn't very good at guitar, but my other friend was taking guitar lessons, and then one day in his garage, he started playing a song that we both liked, and then I started singing, and it was a lot easier than playing guitar, and I was like, oh, okay, I can just kind of do this, and then we wrote our first song that night, recorded it on his four track thought it was the best thing listened to it in the morning destroyed the tape and then then became the journey of like perfecting the craft of being like it feels good in the moment doesn't sound good later how do we get those two things to kind of form together so it feels good and sounds good and then when we listen to it later it still feels good and sounds For good sure yeah so how i mean how did you go about developing that since yeah, I guess you probably found it around like 12 or so, middle school, you said. Um, during high school and even after that, were you like deliberately working on your voice? Yeah, mostly just through rehearsing. I fell in love with not only the aspect of making music and like making something tangible, but also just hanging out with my friends. You know, at that age, it's like a very formative thing. And luckily for me, uh the guitar i was in a band with a guitar player for eight years nine years shout out to tom waterhouse um and he was just as in love with music as i was so i had like this partner in crime that we were we were seven days a week so it was like i fell in love with the making the music i fell in love with like the camaraderie where we'd you know we'd rehearse for three hours play some basketball in the yard go back and rehearse and it was like this hangout session at all times um, so just through playing, just always playing, it was a bit of, um, I would say being naive and thinking I was better than I was as well. So I thought I was like, you know, oh man, I'm so good. And like, I, th we should be winning Grammys now. And like having that bit of just like false sense of being great helped push me along too, until I became aware of how far off the mark I was. And then at that point I was driving at getting to that spot. I had thought I was at for sure. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like I sort of went through a thing like that too, you know, following YouTube tutorials in production, trying to make dubstep tracks. And then I'd go downstairs and show, you know, my family and I'll be like, this is the craziest <laughs> thing ever. I just made this upstairs. And it's not until later that you're like, oh, my God. I everybody's suck. like, oh, that's, that's. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that phase is really important. Yeah, and everybody's though. like, that's really yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that phase is really it, important. It is though, important. Like, to have that, that confidence that's so high mm -hmm. where, like, 
what you're making actually isn't that good. Yeah, <laughs> you, you have needed, to take a step back from that, right? You needed to continue to yeah. get that passion, and then you learn that you suck, and then you can really work on it. Yeah, and at that point, you're already hooked. You yeah. know, you're already hooked, and you're you're all in. Um, yeah, because I think it, to me, and I find this with a lot of people with a lot of different things. When they spend time and energy on something, they're so happy that they created something that they get this like false sense of it being amazing because they feel amazing by the fact that they made it. And they're like, look at this. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's nice. You know, let's, you know, keep working at it. And I think it'll be some. it could be something. All it is is repetitions. But the. Just the feeling of making something makes people overestimate what they actually made <laughs> that happens to me all the time too you know like you're just so stoked on something that you made and somebody goes well this isn't actually that great and you're just heartbroken <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then you're like oh wait you're right it shifts your perspective exactly. and but sometimes it is great and people just it's not connecting with whoever that person That's fair too yeah that makes a lot of sense so after you made that first song with your friend in his garage, was that the moment that you decided like that you want this to be a career for yourself? Yeah, there was no looking back. I base I was all in. Like I seventeen I started touring and you I mean, there are plenty of people who tried to convince me that it wasn't going to work or it wasn't gonna go anywhere. And if I wasn't as persistent as I was, they probably would have been right. Um because I found, at least in the path that I've taken in music, because there's a lot of different paths, like even linking with you, Brady, and seeing the path you've chosen, which is a different thing with like, you know, placements and all those different mm -hmm. things. My path, I feel like just took persistence. I knocked on the door so long that they had to let me in at a certain point. Um. I find in the touring industry, it really is about just being persistent and you just tour and tour and tour until everybody else drops out of the race and you're the last one in it. Yeah, for sure. And then you get the opportunities. For sure. So how, how quick did Last Chance come into the picture? Like what, what was your sort of age or when you joined? I joined when I was 20, 23, oh, wow. maybe. So I'd known the guys from the first tour I ever did when I was 17. I had did the whole tour. We did a seven-week tour. It was terrible. Half the shows didn't happen. We were just living in a van, uh, just cruising up and down the coast. And then the last show was in Vermont, and we showed up early, and this other van pulled up. I think they actually had like an old short school bus that was like a basketball team's bus that they converted into a touring vehicle. But they showed up and we're like, hey, you know, we're this band. They're like, we're this band. We're like, where are you guys from? Like, we're from Maine. And we're like, oh, no way, we're from Maine. And they're the first Maine band we had met all tour, last day of tour, their first day of tour. And then their guitar player is like, yeah, I'm going to UMA, which is a small college in Maine that has like a music program. And our guitar player was like, no way, that's where I'm going next year. And then we just became friends, started doing small, like, week tours with them, two-week tours there. And then I had left my band. I'd moved to Oklahoma, moved back to Maine. And at that point, they were wanting to get rid of their singer due to just personal issues in the band. And I happened to be there. They asked if 
the original idea was I was just helping them demo out vocal ideas for them to use for vocoder later for the record. And then I just ended up joining the band because my band fell through. Our drummer joined a band called I Wrestled the Bear once, uh-huh. and I wasn't going back to Oklahoma. And then it was just, yeah, then it just kind of fell together. That's crazy. And then I Wrestled the Bear once turned into Spirit Box. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You mentioned. Then, yeah, because he, he was actually in Spirit Box when they first originally formed, and then he left. He's probably kicking himself in the ass now that he didn't <laughs> stick with them because they're going to be like an arena band in like four months. That's you know? crazy. It's so it's so weird how it seems like everybody, at least in progressive, the progressive metal scene, um, they just know everybody, you know, even even across borders in from Canada to the U.S. Um, it's really a small scene. It's crazy. The crazy part is he joined I Wrestle the Bear once, which is how Last Chance to Reason got our manager, which is how I met the contortionist because he's the contortionist oh, manager. Wow. Then we did a tour together. That's crazy. So, yeah, that's how that all connects. Because when most people ask me, like, what would your biggest advice be? Is it's like, just meet people, network, because you never know what person's going to be the connection to, like, the big thing that happened. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you've had that where, like, you've got an opportunity that came from somebody that you met from somebody else because you did this one thing that one time and... Yeah, you know? I have a bunch of examples of that. It's yeah. actually crazy. Um, you know, even with Music yeah. Bed, you know, that happened because I was a part of this label that ended up dissolving. And it wasn't never even really a serious label. It's just a group of us, group of friends. And they got hooked up with them. And then I just never left. And, you know, that's been a big part of my career and stuff like that. So it's always just like be on the ball with these sort of opportunities and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, all that leads to the question, like, when did you sort of get into metal and, and screaming instead of, you know, singing and all that? High school. It was my band. It was pretty much from the go. My band learned that we had to play shows to, like, get fans. And we, I mean, we basically booked our first show within two days of having a drummer. We like went to a local show. We're like, you should have us play a show. And then we were up on stages. And then we met another band that took us under their wing because we were like 14 or 15 and they were like 25. They're like, wow, this band like really is motivated to do stuff. So they helped us book weekend shows. Fast forward to us playing a VFW hall with a band called Haste the Day, which was, uh, you know, for people that don't know, they were at that time an underground Christian band that I don't even think they were signed to a label, which also when I went to, they had a pure volume at the time for anybody that remembers what pure volume was. Um, it was like a MySpace for bands type of deal where it's just, you put your music up in your tour dates and they booked their whole tour themselves. So that also sparked my mind of being like, Oh, you can book your own tours. But I played the show with them, and they had a really good clean singer, which I believe their guitar player and bass player both sang, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. or it might have been one of them. And they just had a singer who screamed. And when I was like, wow, you can mix these two things together, and it it could be cool. So then became my journey to figure out how to scream and got into a bunch of bands that kind of mixed and matched both. That's re- so before that you hadn't really been into or introduced to to like 
screaming vocals and heavier stuff? Well, I'd like Slipknot mm. and stuff like that. Like, you know, I found Slipknot in eighth grade, but I was more into like, you know, what people might call radio rock, kind of butt rock, you know, not to be derogatory towards the genre, but, you know, that type of thing. Anything I could get on the radio, because at that point in time, the internet was a thing and there was a little bit of LimeWire and Napster and stuff. But for the most part, my entire childhood, it was either you bought something or heard it on the radio. And generally what you bought is something you heard on the radio. So that was, you know, I was in Godsmack was my first concert and Stained and, you know, all those sorts of things were what I was consuming. And then I started getting into underground music. One of the first underground bands I got into, too, was Poison the Well from a local band who was like, you should check out this underground band. That was the first, like, kind of underground post-hardcore band I had heard that had, like, talking. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And then I fell in love with Misery Signals. And, yeah, just kind of – I kind of have an addictive personality with things that I like. So I go deep down the rabbit hole, and then I find something else. And then I go deep down that rabbit hole, and then hopefully later I kind of merge those different things. Sure. That's crazy. I wonder if that's why your sort of harsh vocal is so distinct then. Because I have a feeling most of the people that end up doing harsh vocals have so many influences already by the time that they start, right? And you kind of seem to be starting at a clean slate. Obviously, inspiration came in after that, probably like a floodgate, but... I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Because it's so good. Like, even in the early days, too, like that that high-pitched banshee scream, too, that you're known for in, like, Last Chance. Oh, for Last Chance to Reason. <laughs> yeah. It's so sick. It's yeah. so good. So, And that came from that came from Hayes Today being one of the first bands I got into. He was a high mm-hmm. screamer. And then I fell in love with, like, for whatever reason, the Christian hardcore scene. I wasn't a Christian, but that was all the bands I kind of gravitated towards because there was a lot of high screamers. So then you take that with the fact that I'm kind of competitive and I want to see how high I can scream and then I wanted to see how low I could scream and I wanted to see, you know, how high I could sing, how low I could sing. I wanted to hit everything on the spectrum and then that kind of led to that high shriek. It's amazing. I still listen to level two just pretty much for that, <laughs> you know, because it's always in the background. Yeah, too. what's funny is... Yeah, I don't listen. I haven't listened to that record in forever. But every time I go back to it, there's things that make me cringe. But there's also things where I'm like, wow, I was really doing that when I was in my early 20s. I forget about the things that I was actually doing. And then there's other things I hear. And I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I should have been We were listening to it yesterday, actually. And yeah. every time I go back to Last Chance, I'm always like, how did I stop listening to Last Chance? Like, it's like a, a yearly thing almost where I just get really into level two and level three for like a month. Yeah. Um, but I guess that leads us into Last Chance. <laughs> Is there a level four coming? <laughs> yeah, we have an EP coming out, four songs, and early next month we shoot the music video in March. So that'll kind of dictate when it actually releases, whenever I shoot and finish that. Oh, so. you're shooting it yourself, the video? Yep. Amazing. Yeah. Um, with the sound that you guys are going for with Last Chance... Is it continuing to be heavy? Can you give any insight on that? Are there any banshee screams in it? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there's no banshee screams. There's like it's it's a mix. There's like a, a pretty heavy song, and then actually I'd say two of them are pretty heavy, and then two of them are a little more of like what level nice. three was. Amazing. And it's just kind of what naturally came together. Yeah, that makes sense. You guys aren't trying to write something that 
you're not necessarily into anymore. I think it totally makes sense. Yeah, which I, I, I'm i all for getting a little crazier in the future. And we did do some weird stuff with this. And I think once we kind of get the wheels under us again, I think we probably will get a little. Nice. Oh, man, I can't wait for that. Um, I wanted to ask when you first joined Last Chance and, and for both level two and level three, what was the writing process like? Were you like heavily involved in, in that or was it mostly Evans, the drummer and like main songwriter name? Right. Um, so level two, I was brought in and I think, I mean, most of the record was done. Evan had actually already recorded all the drums for the record when I started demoing vocals. So a lot of things were in place and Evan had a lot of like MIDI guitar, like one note rhythmic stuff that went with the drums that AJ was starting to transpose into full riffs and chordal things. And then, so m the record as it was in terms of length and general outline was already in place. And then a lot of stuff changed harmonically and leads and bass parts and all that stuff changed throughout. Level three, I was there for the whole writing process. Didn't write really anything musically. I think I was more focused on just getting lyrical things in place with Evan and getting vocals locked in. Nice. It wasn't until I joined the contortionist, which I started kind of adding musical elements that were a part of the record. Even though I will say with level three, there's a little like interlude towards the end of the record that's like a dobro with me singing. And it's like this really ambient far back in the mix yeah. thing. That was something I wrote and we just kind of did on the fly. Okay, nice. Then when we did language, I'd written the source, which got brought in as like a conceptual piece to start the record. And then with clairvoyant, I had done, well, I'd actually written reimagine for language, but it didn't get picked up for that record. And then it ended up making clairvoyant. Oh, so. wow. That's crazy. When you joined the contortionist and you sort of started also giving musical ideas and like instrumental feedback, I guess, was that sort of, did that just sort of happen naturally or was there sort of like a, a pressure for you to be part of that process? It was, it was pretty natural. They, they were always pretty open and receptive to me being like, maybe we should try doing this for this part. And at the longer I've been in the band, I think the better we get with it and the better they are at knowing what I need in order to sing over something. And I know what I kind of know their writing preferences. And I know if something I write will be something they're interested or not. In. That makes sense. And then even just now with like the new record, a lot of it's writing together, you know, on zoom being like, ah, oh, change that to this or change that. And I'll be saying, okay, maybe change that. And we're doing everything together and kind of putting our fingerprint on everything. Nice. Oh man. I'm excited for that new record. Yeah. That probably yeah. helped a lot. If it ever comes out, Jesus. <laughs> um, learning how to help songwrite with the bands and stuff, did that, is that what helped when you started doing your solo stuff with like you creating your own sound? Yeah, it kind of, it did trigger that in the sense that I had all this stuff that I would just write and sometimes it would be like a, a country thing or something. And I was just writing to have fun. And then sometimes it would be something that would work for the bands. 
Um, so naturally I had all this stuff kind of sitting on the sidelines that never got picked up that I was like, I would like to do something with this eventually. And then that kind of triggered me finally releasing. Nice. So after dead and gone, do you already have another single sort of not to go all the way back right now, but, uh, do you already (laughs) have another single or anything in the works? Like that's pretty close to ready. Uh, so there is a single that's completely ready that you are actually a part mm-hmm. of Brady that you'll be getting your songwriting credit yeah. on. Um, <laughs> that is the only reason I haven't released it is because I thought it carried too many characteristics of bottom line in the sense that it's an acoustic driven song Granted, dead and gone is too, but it's a lot more upbeat mm-hmm. and there's a lot of different elements that those two songs don't have. Um, and it kind of has that doomy, gloomy type vibe that like a bottom line has. And that's the only reason I haven't really yet is I wanted to get a far enough separation from that where it doesn't feel like I'm just repetitively putting out the same type of stuff. For sure. That makes sense. Yeah. And I always, I always wonder too, like we talk on here a lot about um, release cadence and feeling the pressure to release tracks like once a month or, or even an album a year or whatever. Um do you ever feel that sort of pressure? Like, how, how do you feel about that general thing in the industry right now about just sort of releasing pretty much everything you ever write? Uh, I would love to be able to keep up with it, but obviously given doing solo stuff and the last chance stuff, I guess if you take all the songs that come out, like say, like we did the live streams and we're doing the EP with the last chance. And then I've put out two singles and I guess the last, you know, it's, coming up on eight months, nine months, something like that, maybe 10. Uh, it kind of evens out as if I had released something once a month. Um, but I try not to focus on that, and I try to just focus on making sure the song is where it needs to be before it comes out. I mean, I waited. It was a long time between Use the Rest and Bottom Line. Yeah, it was like two two years and a bit, right? Mm. Maybe even longer. Yeah, so, and oddly enough, Spotify has rewarded me for with their algorithm for being terrible at releasing <laughs> things steadily. Um, at, well, cause last week I got the most streams I've ever gotten on bottom line because of the algorithm. They boosted me back up and now I'm riding another wave that the algorithm has me on with discover weekly and radio and all that stuff. Nice. I mean, I love to hear that honestly, cause I, I'm one of the people who understand the importance of the, you know, monthly release and stuff. Um, but I also hate it, you know, cause it, like you said, you want to make sure that the songs are up to standard, right? You know, and like you do, you listen to them a thousand times before you put it out. Whereas the sort of meta right now is, you know, just finish it and throw it out and hope it does good in the algorithm. Who really cares if it sounds good? And maybe TikTok will. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so, sometimes that's a better option. It's like, don't overthink it and get it out there. And sometimes that works because like with the contortionist record it's taking forever to make because there's overthinking there's you know we're self-producing it we're waiting on this before we can do that and then this is waiting on that thing to happen that's waiting on this and sometimes it does become this chaotic overthought process and sometimes just releasing stuff is better and there's people that are breaking big on tiktok for just putting out like a quick little 20 second idea they had that they're spinning into a full song and tossing out there and you know, all of a sudden they have a career. Yeah, it's so. pretty nuts what we're seeing right now on 
on TikTok and all that stuff. Yeah. I don't even know where to start with that. I wish I could utilize TikTok. I just don't even know how to approach it in the sense of like where I'm coming from, where I don't feel like I'm being disingenuous. Yes. You know, like I don't want to film myself with a phone sitting in the, like the studio, like pretending like I'm jamming out to the song because I don't do that. <laughs> I'm like, listen, I'm like sitting by the speakers, like listening like this, like, no. <laughs> You know, that's like, that's how I'm listening to my songs. I'm not like vibing out and jamming. 100%. Yeah, looking for that. Why is that, you know, 350 hertz spike happening? Yeah. Um, is this woofy or is it just be, is it just how my speakers are tuned? I got to go listen to this in the car. Exactly. Is the car just weird? I don't like. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you guys are self-producing the new contortionist record. Mm-hmm. How has that process been? Like instead of because you guys normally go to probably Jamie King or something, right? For the past records, we yeah we did language with Jamie King and clairvoyant with Jamie King. Um, honestly, it doesn't feel that much different because a lot of the songwriting Jamie didn't get overly involved in. I would say the thing Jamie produced the most was vocals on on language and clairvoyant. That was like. He's very good at waiting to see where all the dust settles in terms of like he record the drums because we were bad at pre-pro. We never came with like demos for him to listen to. It was like guitar profiles and he'd have to like kind of imagine what it would be. So he'd wait until drums were done, guitars were done, bass. He'd wait till all the instrumentals were done and then he would use how he was viewing it. He'd use me as a tool to kind of bridge things that he thought might sound weird or needed things to fill and we work together on doing that. Cause that's kind of how I approach the vocals anyways. I'm like, okay, what needs vocals? What can do without vocals? So let's start with what needs them. And then if there's extra room for me to play around with, or we need a textural thing, then I'll go in with that. So Jamie was very good at that side of producing, but with this record, I feel like we're, we've already got a good grasp on that mm -hmm. stuff. And you know, in the sense of producing, it's not that hard. Um, it's just the getting the tracking done and not having somebody like Jamie there to engineer. Be like, that's good. Let's move on. Let's get this next th next thing done. And somebody there to task manage. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the important part of somebody like Jamie as well. They get that goes unnoticed. Is somebody who helps move the pro the process along and lets people know when we've reached what we've needed to reach and need to move. For sure. Yeah. And it's interesting because even when me and you first started working together, every single time we have a session, you learn like a new technique for vocals or for vocal recording or using a compressor in a different way. It's actually really cool. Like, do you just do you just mess around a lot or do you actually like look up sort of proper ways, um, like technically proper ways to actually record and stuff? Uh, both. I like to mess around and just do wacky settings a lot. And then also like I watch a lot of nail to mix mm -hmm. stuff. I watch a lot of YouTube videos of people who are doing YouTube's a little tricky because you got a lot of people who, you know, learn a basic preamp compressor setting. And then all of a sudden they're doing like a 10 part series on just like, you don't clip the input and, you know, and stuff like that. So, but like nail the mix, they have like legit mixers on there. And I just started with uh mix with the masters. I just got a subscription for that to watch some stuff and just kind of watch how other people do mm -hmm. it. And you start to realize it really isn't about the gear or how you're setting stuff up. 
It's about whatever your foundational piece is, putting everything in and making sure it fits with that. Because you can build a house a million different ways, depending on what shape you want the house to be and what siding you want. But as long as you put things the right way and build a house, you have a house. You know, so it's about finding the right EQ curves to fit with the, like, even with a, so say, um, good one, the track that we did that I have that's mixed mastered, everything's good to mm -hmm. go. That started with the crappiest acoustic guitar recording yeah. ever. It was like the mic was like five feet away. I was just trying to get it down real quick so I could start with the idea that I had. And it's like overly compressed. It sounds insane. The finger squeaks are terrible. But every time I tried to do a well-recorded guitar with it, it didn't work because everything else I had recorded was recorded around that and built to strengthen that part and fit the vibe of exactly, that. Yeah. So as long as you're doing that and you're putting the pieces where they need to go, you can still get a good song. There's no like real straight line to the finish line. I guess, yeah, we could actually bring it back around to Bonnie Vare with that one. Cause you know, even in skinny love, it's like the most out of tuned, yeah, sure, yeah. crappy guitar go. ever. And it's like the best song ever, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's actually a really good point. I like that. Just working around the initial, yeah. Source. You can make a good song that way. Good point. Yeah. 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 I like that. Yeah, because at the end of the, at the end of the day, it really is just about conveying a feeling. And if you listen to something, you're like, that makes me feel. If it's a metal band, that makes me feel angry. It makes me feel hype. It makes whatever it is. Or you listen to you know for Emma forever ago, and you're like, this makes me feel nostalgic or sad or you know oddly happy in a weird nostalgic type of yeah. way. You know when you listen to Sigaros or you know it's just about getting that feeling across and. Making sure it's, you know, it doesn't blow somebody's speakers because you have, you know, 10K just jacked through the roof on every layer. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Um, sick. Yeah. To get to the contortionist a little bit um, in your history there, how did sort of you joining the contortionist come about? Because you had filled in for John a couple of times, right? Yeah. So, uh, Technically, it was filling in, but I never, once I've rehearsed with the band, I've basically been in the band since. It was, um, so essentially, Last Chance for Reason had done a tour. Um, our guitar, well, I guess, actually, no, this was while I was on guitar with the contortionist. They called me up, asked me to fill in. I filled in for three months of touring. And while we were out on tour, one of the guitar players at that time in Last Chance to Reason said he no longer wanted to pursue Last Chance to Reason. And by the end of that tour, our second guitarist had had some personal issues pop up to where he wasn't going to be able to tour. And the contortionist hadn't found anybody viable to fill the role of frontman for the band. They did like some weird competition where it's like, this could be you. And they had John's face blacked out and people did uh, covers of hollow movement, I believe. And this is all the while I'm filling in and we're doing tours. And once I found out both guitar players weren't going to be able to tour, I called up Evan and Chris, uh, Evan, our drummer and Chris, our bass player for last chance to reason. And I was like, listen, this is looking like it's going to hold us up for a while do you guys have a problem if I pursue this? Because Chris was having his second child at the time, which also was going to hinder touring. And I was just like, I don't want to lose this opportunity. And then we slow down and just stop doing stuff. And I was like, I still want to do last chance to reason stuff. This is just, 
another thing. I'll juggle both as much as you guys need me to, which we did. Um, and I just called up and I was like, Hey, I want the spot. And they're like, all right, you got it. Like, you know, it wasn't really much of a fight. I had already, I was already prepped and ready to go for tour and me joining the band after filling in actually put them way ahead of schedule than they expected. And by the following year we had language. Wow. Yeah. So it just worked out. Amazing. Yeah. That's super sick. So for last chance, you lost both, you guys lost both the guitarists, but at this point now, is it pretty much Evan doing the guitars or, or have you got, uh, nope. So AJ is still oh, in the band. Is. The person, AJ, who had some personal issues pop up, so he wasn't gonna be able to tour his personal issues got handled and he is recording guitar in the band. He's recorded all the guitar. Oh, amazing. So, and he's the original guitar player from level one, uh, level two and level three. Oh, wow. Sick. Man, I'm yep. fucking stoked for that. Really, really stoked. Um, when you joined the Contortionist, how did it feel like being on stage? Was it a lot different than how you presented yourself when you were with Last Chance? At first it wasn't, and then it slowly became this different thing. Um, with Last Chance, it was very like we were just having fun. Like when you listen to level two, it's, it's pretty absurd. And we realized that, and we always leaned into the fact that it was, there were these moments that could be perceived as cheesy, but we thought they were cool and they rocked and we were having fun with it. So, you know, I do stupid stuff. Like I'd be like, this next song is called, you know, program for battle, battle, battle. And I do like, you know, fake like delay throws and stupid stuff like that. So we are always having fun. And when I filled in for the contortionist, it started like that. And then as it went on, I started envisioning like what type of frontman would I like to see for this band? This band that's like people consider artsy and a little darker. You know what I mean? Like people thought very highly of the band. So I was like, okay, now what can I do to kind of create this artsy presence on stage that's a little different, a little unsettling? And then I just started trying to envision what I would like to see up there for it. And then, you know, it turned into this kind of like robotic, weird movement, stare down the crowd type of vibe. And it's kind of molded and shifted over the years. But yeah, it just kind of became a thing. I wanted to put on a performance. And for a while, I didn't want to talk to the crowd because I wanted it more like a theatrical performance where I didn't break I didn't want to break the the spell, yeah. if you will, until at the end when I'm like, "Thank you very much for the contortionist." Yeah, because I think that's what that's the thing that we noticed the first time that we saw you guys live, like eight years ago or something, or even maybe longer than that now, um, was your stage presence. Not only the fact that you guys sounded exactly like the album yeah. almost, um, but it was just so much more different than other bands. Like like you're saying, like you guys wouldn't even really come out and introduce yourselves. I remember when I was younger, I saw Marilyn Manson live once, and he did the same thing. But with him, it was because he's a dick, right? <laughs> and with you guys, though, it was just it was Fair really enough. cool, and it made it very engaging. Yeah, and the whole performance was captivating, and like like you're saying, your like robotic moves where you're sort of glitching with the rhythm mm -hmm. and stuff. You know, it was sick. And we actually met you oh, yeah. in the first. Uh, the first concert we ever went to, I remember you used to come down at like all your concerts, you, a couple of you guys, not just you, um, and you come talk to the crowd and stuff. Is that because you weren't really talking much on the stage and you felt like you had to kind of make up for it? Or was it just because you wanted to get to know your fans a little bit better? 
Um, I think it was trying to get to know the fans and, yeah, kind of create that personal connection early on. Um, as the years have kind of progressed, it's harder to do that because, you know, if somebody can catch me, I say catch me, but, I mean, if somebody finds me and wants to talk to me, I'm more than willing to give them my time. But if I go down to the merch table these days, everybody wants all my time. And it's very hard because I can't give everybody all my time, especially after like the last tour, two hours on stage. We do VIP. We do all these things. Um, my voice can only handle so much. But yeah, back then it was, you know, we were doing 20 minute sets. So it's like there's time to get off. There's time to engage with people, meet people. And at that point, you know, we're kind of known, but we're doing tours where people don't know who we are. So it's really about just making that connection with everybody. Yeah. And that's kind of where that stemmed from. Yeah, cause and the no talking thing on stage, too, was uh, I would watch bands, and a lot of bands' stage performance is based off of the crowd. That's part of the show. The crowd moving, the crowd doing stuff, everybody get up, everybody put your hands up. And like I said, I wanted it to be there. I wanted us to be the show. I didn't want the distraction of the crowd. Oh, wait, this person's hitting me. I'm trying to, like, you know. I want it very much like I'm I'm not even aware you exist out here. Watch the show. Yeah. Like this is what's happening. And obviously mosh pits happen and all that stuff. Whereas now it's a little more engaging. I I go back and forth the crowd a little bit and all that stuff, but it's just cuz I don't want to do the same thing over and over and I'm sure at some point it's going to twist and flip again and I'm going to do something else, but a lot of our fans are you know amazing in the sense they come to a lot of shows so i want to make sure they're getting something new and exciting when they do you yeah. know not like oh here he goes he's doing that thing again and then he goes over here and he does that thing and oh this song's coming up wait he's going to go over here and do that thing and even with your vocal performance too you used to do the high scream in language two i believe you don't really do that anymore or at least maybe mm -hmm. it's sporadically you do it um yeah every every show that we've been to it's it's a little bit different every time and it's just so sick like we're gonna keep going to contortion shows right yeah <laughs> i do have to ask though have you ever like kinked your neck with the moves you do yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah yeah i have neck problems to this day actually yeah that's oh, a serious no. thing <laughs> I, have, I have like serious neck problems uh so and it's not just from stage moves it's also from sleeping in a van for the entirety of my 20s uh and just doing that, you know, like sleeping upright and sharing. I mean, we used to travel in a 15-passenger van with nine guys, uh, you know, and you're talking eight to nine-hour drives a night. So for a month and a half straight, sometimes three months. Uh, yeah, so I'm not the only person, uh, touring crew included, that have messed up bodies just from years of that's crazy. That is, yeah. I'm like, oh man, you guys are putting yourselves out there for us. Yeah. We <laughs> for the fans, it. it's sick. <laughs> well, we get something yeah. out of it too. You know, it's not completely selfless. Um, when you, when you guys were writing language one and two, do you remember that sort of? Do you remember recording it? Like, did you guys know that was going to be the sort of single of language? I guess since it's a self-titled one. Um, was that always the plan, though, when, when writing it? I don't think we knew it would be the single. Um, so Language One was the first song written for the oh, record. Wow. And oddly enough, it's the only song we wrote together in a jam room. 
Uh, the rest of the record was written on laptops and, you know, just like a recording type setup yeah. between Guitar Pro and uh, just like microphones and stuff and me singing over Guitar Pro files and stuff like that. But that was the only one written in uh, actual jam space. And I think it was just by the time we had finished the record, it was very apparent. Um, it was either going to be that or Parable. But I think we went with that because that kind of, it kind of sets the tone for what the rest of the record's going to be. It has a little bit of everything throughout, and it has a lot of the themes that end up going throughout. And I think since it was the first thing written, it gave us that launch point to be like, okay, let's take this chord progression and let's bring it back here because it'll work nicely with this and it'll bring the theme back around. And that was kind of why that one kind of anchored everything and kind of the launch point for that record. Yeah, that's fair. Even lyrically and stuff, Ebb and Flow is in that one. And yeah. Yeah. Man, that's such a fucking great song. I love it so much. But on that note, with uh, writing language one and two, when you guys were writing Clairvoyant, did you go into it thinking you weren't going to be using harsh vocals? Because this, this was a big controversy at the time. I don't know if you guys felt it, but um, I'm sure you did. But uh, yeah, was this sort of planned? It wasn't planned until most of the songs had been written and I realized there wasn't a need for them. Uh, and then as kind of like a, a fun little thing to do, I decided that any of the screaming I was going to have other people do on the record. So, so like the screaming clairvoyant was our director who did uh, reimagined and Return to earth for oh, us. Really? Um, he does the screaming and the and then we got a couple of the other guys to scream that. And I'm tucked in there, but I wanted it to be primarily other people screaming. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. Just because I could, you know. And then, yeah, on language, we have our merch guy uh, at the time, and he did our last tour with us, Billy O, and our sound guy at the time, Robbie Brown. They did screaming on that record, too. So we like to tuck in our crew members whenever we can. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Is is Billy the one who um, filled in for you while you were sick on the last tour for a little bit there? Uh, that was no, Jerry. Sure. He came out and did a song each night. Yeah. I think he did Flourish yeah. for two shows. Yeah. Oh, man. That's sick. And with the ambient sections on Clairvoyant, like, they're the thing that, you know, keeps the whole record together i feel like it's the glue in between each track and all this um how did that idea sort of come about i think the idea was just kind of we didn't know what order the record was going to be in so we knew we were going to have to have these kind of interludes and stuff like that to tie things together and do all this weird stuff and eric was very excited to kind of take on the task of having these kind of uh vignettes if you will in between tracks to make stuff uh, mold and fit a little better and make it feel a little more like a journey yeah but yeah i'm really happy with the overall atmosphere of that record and how dark it turned out because that was language was you know it it had dark moments and stuff but all in all between like the artwork and everything it was more of this uplifting record where i definitely wanted clairvoyant to be a darker side of that yeah, and you were the sort of creative director behind that, right? You you shot, like, the clairvoyant cover and all that? Am I wrong about that? 
Uh, I didn't shoot the cover, no, but I worked with the artist and basically gave him gave him a mood board, gave him a rundown of what the lyrical content was and what I wanted. The idea originally was to have something to symbolize like a gravesite. So the idea was it'd be like this wooden wreath on the ground that would look like a gravesite. But then he took it and kind of did his own spin on it where he had that kind of wooden wreath that he shot up off the ground and then he cropped it out and continued into like an infinite kind of like tunnel, if you will, with the yeah, cover. Yeah, for sure. It's so good. And it really kind of like... And then he had like a... He did have like a silhouette of a man in there and I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> that is... Who's that guy? We don't know who that for is. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like you said, it's so dark and really plays off that idea of the record being so dark. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I guess we move right into Our Bones, which is your guys' newest releases. Um, yeah. How did you guys know you wanted to cover 1979? Where did that sort of idea come from? Um. I've always wanted to cover 1979. Uh, like a year or two before that, I had actually done like a like a crappy recording of it. I did a crappy recording of that and REM losing my religion just for like fun. Um, and it's just like I think it was perfect timing for that too because I love that song. I grew up with that song. It's a song about nostalgia and growing up and passing the threshold from youthhood into adulthood. It just felt like a good song to do. It's Eric's favorite band is Smashing Pumpkins. I love the song. It felt like a song where we could add something new to it and not just do a verbatim cover. We could still play it verbatim, but it would feel different because it was us doing it given the technology change, the player change, and obviously Billy Corgan's voice. So that's kind of where that stemmed from. Nice. And then even naming the EP after that song, why not name it, you know, All Grey or or even Early Grave or something? So you, you want to know what's funny is uh, Follow has a line that's, uh, they've got us by our bones. Oh, yeah. I didn't even realize until after we finished the EP that there was there was a lyrical connection between the two. So that was probably more of a subconscious thing. So I actually did it because of the follow lyrics and not the Smashing Pumpkins oh, lyrics. Wow. That's really cool. Wow. I just completely yeah. assumed it was yeah. the Smashing Pumpkins one. <laughs> but that yeah, and then when you take into account like all gray and stuff like that about, you know, basically dissolving into the earth. And then you take the lyrics of Smashing Pumpkins, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It all it all just it was it was a happy coincidence that everything worked out the way it did. Yeah. It seemed fitting. And then on top of that I had years of footage of touring. And when it came to do the music video, we had uh a bunch of footage of us playing the song from the reimagined tour, but no full playthrough, so we wouldn't be able to do just a full live performance footage of it. And I was like well, what if I do like a home movie style video, which also plays into the fact of, you know, the nostalgia growing up and, you know, these, I've literally grew up with these guys in my twenties, yeah. you know, we spent eight years living in a van together. So, oh man, that's so sick. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. With, with you editing a lot of the contortionist stuff, like uh, music videos, when did you get into that? When did you realize that, you know, you even could do that? 
Because you edited uh, after you edited reimagined and the other single off of Return yeah, to Earth. Yeah. So those were co- those were co-edit. So I co-edited them with our director Ezra okay. uh, Badar. Um, or Ares. I don't know why I said Ezra. Ares. Sorry, Ares, if you see this. <laughs> I was thinking uh, Ezra Miller, The Flash. Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, I co-edited it. So it wasn't until um, Early Grave that I did just straight, just me editing, nobody else touching it. Um, but it was early on that I realized with the language shoot where I was there for the full editing process. I was in the editing room being like, oh, well, let's change that. Let's do that. But that's where I fell in love with video because I was trying to communicate things and I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I realized that was a disadvantage during, during the creative process to get what I wanted out of it because I've always had a strong vision of what I've wanted visually and musically for the band. And when I started doing the video stuff, I couldn't communicate that so i was like i really have to figure this out and then i fell in love with the art form that is video and how it really pairs well with the music and really it dictates the music video the first couple singles for a record really dictate how people view your band um so it's very impactful so i feel very protective over that what people are going to see and what portrays us and what makes people think of what we even are for sure i guess on that note with the new record coming out soon how the last two records were big concept records right um is the next one following the same suit or are you kind of going an opposite direction or how's that how's that working out yeah, um, it's a little more each track holds its own identity, but there is a bit of just DNA and everything that's the same. But it's not this. It's not like this overarching concept like the last two records where it's got like this linear story that mm-hmm. happens, where it's like this is the start, this is the end. Each one kind of takes on its own identity. So it's a little different in that sense. For sure. Is there a timeline where we can be expecting new contortionist music? Am I allowed to ask that? <laughs> I I really, I mean, the album really isn't that far from being completed. Yeah. It's just there's a few things holding us up that we really just need to buckle down and get done. Because um, we're in the talks right now of getting test mixes from a handful of different mix engineers. Nice. So there's a few things we have to do before we can do that. And then really after that, it's kind of... You know, all systems go. We can, even before the mix is done, we can shoot music videos. I've already had meetings with the artist about the artwork nice. and what I want to see and how to tie that all together. And um, so, yeah, just got to gotta do some things and get it finished. Nice. I can't wait for that. Sounds like it's on, like, the last, the last level. Yeah. Yeah, I'd hope it's, it should be this year. If it isn't this year, then we've tragically messed up. <laughs> For sure. Looking at your solo stuff, you have a music video um, for Use the Rest, right? Yeah. Did you come... What's that for yeah. Use the Rest? Did you come up with the whole concept yep. idea for that music video? Yeah, so that was actually... 
Um, we did a live shoot in Austin, Texas for Machine Shop mm -hmm. Live. Uh, Machine, who's like a legendary producer. Our current sound guy, Julian, he he's uh, Machine's main engineer who works at the Machine Shop. So we were doing Machine Shop Live, and then um, the guy who directed Reimagined turned to Earth lives in Austin now. So I had him come out just to hang out because I hadn't seen him in a while. I had my camera and I was like, I need to shoot a music video. I don't know what to do. Here's what we're going to do. I want like this dreamlike sequence. Um, so we're just going to, we could only shoot for 30 minutes because he had to go. So I was like, we're just going to do like a Groundhog's Day type thing where I can't wake up out of this. I keep waking up and I'm back in the same spot. And then at the end, I shot the rest of it when I got home, and I just shot myself waking up in my bed. Um, but it, it ended up working out well just with the general idea of, like, getting caught in this loop of something that you continually think you need that isn't good for you, and then eventually breaking the loop. So it's kind of like a little bit of a metaphorical thing. But it kind of just happened on the spot because I was like, I don't know what's the quickest way we can do something impactful, but with me just walking down a road, you know, I literally just walked up and down the road 10 different times and he just shot me from different angles and then I edited it together. Awesome. So. Yeah. It worked yeah. out. Right. Sometimes the, the simpler, the concept, the better, right. Yeah. Instead of overcomplicating and uh, yeah. over convoluting too. Yeah. That's sick. Is there going to be any sort of visualizer or music video for, um, uh, dead and gone. So I had been working on something. I don't know if it'll be finished in time for the single. Um, there'll definitely be like some video ad mat type stuff just to kind of, you know, have like a clip with some stuff. I was trying to do a full music video, but I just, I just don't think it's going to come together in time, but maybe I'll release it after the fact. Yeah. hundred percent. It's going to be sick. I wish we could ask you about how is that release going because it's going to be out by the time this comes yeah. out, but we can't. <laughs> so. But we can promote it, so go listen to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll say it's yeah. going good. We'll get uh, put that out into the yeah. universe. Yeah. yeah, I'm hoping it, uh, you know, I'm hoping because it is a little different than the mm -hmm. other songs that it does cover some new territory. It puts me in some listeners' ears that normally wouldn't listen to the other stuff but like this one because it is a little more upbeat yeah. in its, it's own like way twangy and it's a cool one yeah and you know i'm on it too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the baseline <laughs> yeah it'll give me that mumford and sons yeah, tour there you go oh my god imagine that <laughs> should we get into our fan questions yeah we'll end it off on the fan questions we've only got one well there's actually two but it's oh. okay well, I, I was going to say, I only have two fans, so... <laughs> well, they're both... This works out. They're both from Adam, who is our friend. Oh, so my other fan didn't, didn't oh. call in. <laughs> um, he's actually also an artist under the name Bedroom. Yep. Um, and he asks, what inspires you to when you're writing your music? Sounds, thoughts, other music... Um, A little bit of everything. So every time... I sit down and try to work on something. I'm just chasing the inspiration, whether it's like I come up with a a phrase. So even say there's a song on the next contortionist record called Welcome to the Future. And 
I've always loved the phrase future proof. So it kind of started with that. And then I'm like, okay, let's do, you know, in the, the initial element that we started with the song was like this very industrialized, like ear turning, like drum beat that we did with uh, Dan Bronstein. And I was like, okay, I want something futuristic. And then welcome to the future was the first thing down. And then all this stuff kind of came flooding out and gave me tons of ideas, which then got me excited and, really just about finding the thing that gets me excited whether it's like ooh, this you know pitch shifted vocals you know makes me think of this or it makes me think of that or ooh, what if it had this underneath it or this would be cool what if it goes into this like really spaced out part afterwards so it's like me sitting down and just trying to find the thing that excites me and i'm sure as you know brady sometimes you sit down and it's nothing it's like three hours of nothing <laughs> don't find it um and Sometimes it, it just comes right out the gate. And usually those are the songs that get finished quickly and do well. Like, I think, bottom line, I mean, everything but the bridge was written in the first, like, I just sat down, played two chords, and sang what is the verse and the chorus, and I was like, oh. It, like, happened in, like, ten yeah. minutes. Recorded it, and then... You know, weeks later went to it and I was like, oh, I just need a bridge, put a bridge in and then, you know, did all the other elements and then I had a song. But that was, I mean, most 90% of that song was written in 10 minutes. Yeah, we've experienced so, that. I was just excited. For sure, we've experienced that. Like me yeah. and you, yeah. like all aspects of that. We've had sessions that were like four hours long and we came up with nothing. But then no yeah. was written in a session, like I think completely done. Mm. Um, and soon took yeah. us like eight sessions of like three hours a piece. It's crazy. It's all over the place. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. So, yeah. It's really just about, yeah. Finding that inspiration, what excites you and gets you excited to sit there for hours on end and get it done. hundred uh, percent. His next question was, do you enjoy traveling and being on tour and how do you maintain structure in your life with being so busy on the road? Um, so I enjoyed traveling a lot more when I was younger. Um, eventually it gets a little tiring. You're going to the same place. Like I've usually, if we go on a tour and I know it's an A market tour, I could probably list all the venues that we're going to be playing because I know what A market tours entail. I know what B market tours entail and I know what C market tours are. So we usually play the same spots, which in a weird way over the years that makes it better because i know oh we're playing irving plaza in new york city i'm going to go eat at this spot down the street and i can grab boba tea on the way back or i can do this or there's that coffee spot it makes it a it makes it a lot better in that sense but also the older i get you know i have a wife i have animals we're trying to start a family so it makes it harder in that sense cuz i'm essentially just abandoning all home duties when i leave which makes it hard. Um, but, yeah, so I don't love it as much as I used to. I do love playing shows, and I love what it means when I'm traveling. But in terms of touring, not so much anymore. I kind of like to be either at my house or going to Maine to visit my family. That's about it. That's where I like to be if I'm not forced to be out on the road. And in terms of keeping a schedule... It's hard. It's really hard because once you get sucked into that tour groove, you just want to sleep all day, wake up, eat something, play the show, and go back to sleep. 
So it's really about just finding small tasks to make your day. So even if it's like getting up, I have to go find a coffee spot, go to a coffee spot, come back. I need to take a shower. Like the simple things that you're like, oh, that's what I do every day. It's hard to do on tour for whatever reason. You have all the time in the world and nothing else to do, but you're stuck at the venue. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's really hard to explain. It's easy to keep a routine at home. But on the road, for whatever reason, it's like everything goes out the window. That makes sense. So it's really about just doing the small things. For sure. Before we ended off, you mentioned that you've got some animals now. And before this call, you even mentioned that you got a new uh, chicken coop. So since moving to Montana, mm -hmm. you know, you're raising chickens and stuff. Yep. We've got five chicks. Uh, we have Eleanor, Zelda, uh, Gertie, which is Gertrude, uh, Murdy, which is Myrtle, and then we got Agnes. Those are my five chickens. That's, so That's sick. We have three more coming in about a month and a half. So they'll be in the backyard. Yeah, we just got them like some guy had built a coop that he was getting rid of. It's like a 600-pound giant coop. Um, so they're living luxury right now. We upgraded them. It's like five times bigger than their previous coop. Wow. So, yep, got five chickens, three cats, a dog, and... Uh, my wife wants another dog for her birthday, so <laughs> how that goes. Sick. Before we end it off, dude, I just want to, how, how has life in Montana been? You know, have you been hiking a bunch, you know, in the mountains or? Uh, I haven't been hiking lately. We just got hit with a pretty big snowstorm a couple weeks ago, but the last couple of days it's been like 40 or 50 degrees, which is kind of nice. Um, so lately just kind of finishing you know trying to get stuff done for dead and gone and i have some client work for music videos so i'm finishing up some edits i have another video for a client that's due in a couple months but it's heavy vfx and stuff like that so i'm trying to get a jump start on it so we can make sure that stuff's all ironed out and not hit any like roadblocks close to release yeah yeah just doing client work nice. torsionist record and all that that's stuff amazing I just want to say thank you, man, for being on this. It's really cool to be able to. Oh, no. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of We All Speak in Poems. And a huge thank you to our guest today, Michael Lassard. If you'd like to support Michael, go check out his new track, Dead and Gone, on Spotify or wherever you listen to your music. And perhaps give it a purchase on Bandcamp if you're into it. We will be back with another episode in about two weeks. So we'll see you then. <laughs>